0: Three, two, one. I relaunch the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, the chair and co-founder of I relaunch, and your host for today. Today, we welcome Joanne Lippman. Joanne is the author of "That's What She Said: What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together." She's the former editor-in-chief of USA Today. And was the deputy managing editor of the Wall Street Journal. Hi, Joanne. Welcome to Three Two One. I relaunch. Hi, Carol. Great to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you. And I want to start uh, with talking about, of course, your book. Uh, that's what she said. It couldn't be more timely. But I'm thinking about the timeline here that the book came out in 2018, and I'm guessing you turned in the manuscript before that, maybe the year before. So tell us when you realized that men being part of the conversation and in the know about all of the discussions about gender bias and unconscious bias was an important thing and it was going to be important if both men and women were going to function comfortably and effectively in the workplace. So,
1: Carol, you are 100% correct that the book had to be written before 2018. And in fact, I actually started working on it now, it must be almost four years ago. Um, and the reason I started it is because I, as I rose up in leadership, right, I started as a reporter at the Wall Street Journal and I rose through leadership to become the deputy managing editor, then became editor in chief of a business magazine, then went to, uh, to um, Gannett. As editor in chief over there, and as I rose to these leadership positions, I kept um, being invited to more of these women's leadership conferences, and the conferences were great. But you know, as somebody who grew up professionally surrounded by men. I felt like there was something missing, and that is every time I'd go to one of these conferences, we would have the same discussion over and over again. We would all talk about the issues that we face at work, and not just the sexual harassment um, kinds of real severe abuses that we are reading about in the headlines, but the everyday indignities, the being marginalized at work, talked over, interrupted, simply not taken as seriously as the guy in the same job sitting right next to us. We would talk about this with each other, but what we didn't do is talk to men about it. And as somebody who grew up professionally surrounded by men, all of my mentors were male. And my colleagues were largely male. As a reporter, my sources were largely male. I knew quite a few of really, really great guys who I felt like they should be part of this conversation. But we weren't inviting them in, and they didn't know how to start. They, Even if they were interested in it, they just had no idea where to begin. So I really felt like it was time for us to have this gender conversation with men as well as women.
0: Well, you certainly called it early, and I can tell you myself, you know, I uh, started my career in the 80s, and I also had Male mentors all the way through who went to bat for me, and I, I felt I, you know, I didn't experience any gender issues with them. But I was, I was in investment banking and investment management, and it was also very male dominated. So I completely relate to what you're saying. Uh, so can you talk to us a little bit about what we're seeing now, which is a reaction, I think, to a lot of what's been in the news and the extreme cases that now at lots of companies they have diversity training or unconscious bias training and is it your sense that people go to this with their like rolling their eyes or feeling like oh i've got to go spend an hour doing this or is it meaningful and or is some meaningful and some not depending on who's leading it what is your thought about that
1: sure so so diversity training actually started um really more than three decades ago. It, it, it was the result at first of lawsuits in the 1970s, before our time, uh, by women in media and in banking. Um, and, and as a result of these lawsuits, um, companies had to start hiring women and they started this diversity training. Now, the problem with diversity training is that it has failed. Um, There's a researcher at Harvard by the name of Frank Dobbin. He looked at 30 years of diversity training at more than 800 companies, and he found that for two groups, women and black men and women, it actually made things worse. Now there is a variety of reasons why this is the case, but one of them actually turned out to be resentment on the part of the white men who were the primary recipients of the training it made them feel bad about themselves. And, um, it turns out that was the point. I actually, I spoke to a veteran diversity trainer and he said to me, look, when we started doing this, basically our procedure was banging white guys over the head with a two by four and trying to make them feel guilty. So that totally backfired. Now, more recently, We have um, what's often called unconscious bias training. So unconscious biases, this is a newer concept. This is the concept that all of us, men, women, black, white, no matter who you are, we all have these biases that are buried so deeply inside of us that we don't even realize that they exist. And they come out and uh, affect our behavior in ways that we may not even be, um, be sure about, that we may not recognize. So this unconscious bias training now it's intended to um, to show us what our you know uh, to, to 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 show us what our unconscious biases are, and to give us strategies uh, to interrupt those biases. There, you know, it's that training is the the pro of that training on the plus side is. It's a little bit guilt-free, right? Because we're all biased. We all have a problem. So we're not just banging up on the, uh, you know, we're we're not just like beating up on the white guys. We all have this. Um, But the, the problem I see with unconscious bias training is that a lot of companies use it as a crutch. So you go through an hour or two or three of unconscious bias training and companies sort of wash their hands of all of this and say, okay, we're done. We're all trained. And that's simply not the case. There's some research that shows that the impact of unconscious bias training lasts for maybe a few hours or a few days, but not beyond that. So you really need to have culture change, policy change, strategy change. You know, you really, it's, it's, a, it's a multifaceted issue, biases, and there are, we have to constantly be vigilant and we have to make more changes than simply any kind of training.
0: So that, of course, leads us to the next question, which is, what is the best way for companies to educate employees on gender discrimination topics, whether they're intentional or not intentional?
1: Right. So there are a variety of ways. So, and that's what she said. I was really focused on finding solutions. And in fact, most of the people who I interviewed, and I, and I did spend three years interviewing people, uh, most of the people I interviewed were men who were trying to make a difference. And I and I asked them about kind of what strategies had they created or come across that that worked for them. So number one, first and foremost, is that any sort of culture change must come from the top. It has to be the leader. In too many companies, and I do quite a bit of corporate speaking at organizations and at too many companies, it's... The um it's the HR department that uh that is in charge of changing the culture. Now that will never ever work. I've met some amazing diversity and inclusion professionals in HR, but they alone don't set the tone. It really is set at the top. So I, I always say the CEO and the CFO need to own diversity and need to be held accountable for it. And there, there's a couple of reasons for this. One is first of all, every piece of research tells us and shows us that when you have diversity in your organization, you're actually more successful. So you are more financially successful. Your employees are happier. uh, uh, Employee groups are actually more creative and better at problem solving when we have, you know, diverse voices in there. So every piece of research tells you that if you want to be successful, that it, that needs to be paramount for you, diversity. Um, and but the other the other issue is the reason I say CFO is because it has to do with financial results as well. And so if these individuals, CEO, CFO, are not held accountable for this, if they see it as somebody else's problem, it's just simply not gonna happen. And then there's individual things that organizations can do and that individuals can do. And we can talk about some of those. I mean, in that's what she said, I actually have a cheat sheet. In the back of the book, and in the paperback, I have two cheat sheets in the back of the book. One specifically for individuals, things you can do to close the gender gap, and one for organizations, which are sort of proven methods that some organizations have employed to close the gap.
0: Ah, okay. I have the hardcover, so now I need to get the paperback for the additional cheat sheet. So I'm glad to hear about those. Um, Well, we can. I want to get into um, some detail about that in in a little bit, but practically like how does this manifest itself in the workplace like what if you're a guy who's who's a hugger or what if you're a woman who's a hugger or you, you know like can people hug when they see each other if they like know each other pretty well or is that kind of off limits and what is it like what are the new protocols uh, in the wake of the, the you know the me too world and the that's what she said world
1: Right, right. This is a great question. I hear this all the time. And um, first of all, I am a hugger. <laughs> <laughs> <True> <laughs> <consecutive>. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, here, here's the thing there are, there are we, we hear some extremes. We hear that there are some men who say, oh, I'm never going to hire a woman. I'm not going to ride the elevator alone with a woman. I'm not going to mentor a woman. I have no patience for this. Um, I was on a panel the other day where this question came up from a man in the audience and, and a fellow panelist, a woman looked at him and said, tell me something, are you a sexual predator? Because if you're not, get in the damn elevator, right? <laughs> um, but but there are, you do hear from men who say, wait a second, I think the rules have changed. So if, if in doubt, ask. Um, this is the best time. I actually think there's never been a better time to actually talk about what are the issues that women do face at work. And it's a great uh, way women welcome that conversation. So so as a, for instance, uh, not long ago, I met a, um, a business associate, a guy I haven't seen in quite a while, but who I go back years with, right? And we hadn't seen each other in a while. We met for a drink. I walk into the restaurant and he gives me a hug and he immediately pulls back and says, uh-oh, yeah. is that okay? Right. Uh, and I, I laughed. I said, look, it's totally fine because uh, I'm a hugger, as we know. Uh, I said, it's totally fine, but you know what? I'm glad you asked because it's fine with me, but maybe for the next woman, it's not fine. So there's nothing wrong. You can't lose, right? You're, there, there's, there's nothing wrong with asking the question. Um, and I do believe that... Um, it's really important not to close down those channels of communication. Uh, also for men who are in positions of authority. Um, I hear from them too saying like, what do I do? I can't mentor women because you know it, it looks bad. What if I'm like taking her out for a drink or you know, like it just doesn't look good. And, and what my answer to that is you know there's so many ways that you can have a mentoring relationship, which is basically just creating a, a a more, um, you know, a better connection or friendship even. And there are so many ways that you can do that to to have develop social ties that don't have to do with going out drinking or playing golf. And and as an example, I'll use one from my own life again, which is, you know, when I was a young reporter um, before I got married, um, I had a boss, fantastic male boss. And he used to say to me, look, you know, um, my wife and I would like to take you and a date to dinner. And so that becomes like a couple's thing. When I got a little older, I had a different boss. I was married. I had kids. He had kids. And we would get together for family outings. So, so there were things that he did with the guys that I was not part of. He had a poker game with the guys. Uh, I was not part of that. But the guys were not part of our family outings or when we would take our kids to the movies together, right? So so there are so many variations. We have to be a little bit more creative than just drinking and golf.
0: Yeah, I like the creativity. Those are great examples. Um, Joanne, can you tell us a little bit more about you had all of like hundreds of conversations with men during the research for your book? What what did men Talk to you about uh, and what were they most worried about? Uh, what 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 were they excited about? Uh, that could you know where they could make a difference?
1: Yeah, so I would say uh, what's surprised me I think the most because I would ask these men I would generally start the conversation by saying tell me you know what perplexes or confuses you about the women who you work with and I was really surprised. Um, at how many said, I'm afraid she'll cry. And now it, it is true, biologically speaking, women, particularly young women, do cry more often than older men. But what these men were saying is they were in positions of authority and they were afraid that they would inadvertently hurt her feelings and say something that would make her cry. But here's the thing. The research actually shows us that when women do cry at work, it is not because our feelings are hurt. It is because we're pissed off. We're we're furious. We're frustrated. But the men don't know that. So there's this disconnect in communication. And in fact, we see that in surveys of executive men. There was one survey that I believe is done by Catalyst. And they asked men, what might be a barrier to you? being an advocate for women's equality in the workplace. And 74% of those men cited fear. It was fear of loss of status, fear of what other men might say, but also fear of saying the wrong thing. They are literally afraid they're going to say the wrong thing to us and we will bite their heads off. So I think that the fear factor plays an outsized role in us really coming together to discuss and come up with solutions to the issues.
0: So hold that thought because I I, I want to ask you a follow-up, but I also want to remind those of you who have just tuned in that you're listening to 321i Relaunch. This is your host, Carol Fishman Cohen, and I'm speaking with Joanne Lipman, author of That's What She Said. Joanne, following up on what we were just discussing, uh Do you think there's a generational element to this at all? And what about men who are junior to the women instead of senior?
1: Right, right. So first of all, yes to the generational question. I see an enormous difference when I'm speaking to groups between those who are um, very young, particularly women who are recent college grads in their first jobs, and those who, like you and I, who we would call more seasoned Yeah, that's me. So, yeah. So <laughs> women who started work, I would say in the 80s, like pre-Anita Hill, are much more tolerant of crap, right? And and um we put up with a lot and I think because women when we entered the workplace in the 1980s, it was a man's world and that's just the world it was. So we were not trying to change that world, we were simply trying to get in to that world and we were thrilled to be there. So we were not trying to change the world. Um, unfortunately, I think that's also a reason why um, women's gains have actually eroded in recent years, right? We were not activists. Most of us were not activists. Um, and uh, and so when I speak to these younger women who are just out of college, the younger women will say, you know, they, they have they have no patience for any of this. They're furious at what they're, they're like the angriest generation I've ever seen. Um, they're furious. And, and they're also a little bit angry at us. They're, you know, like, why did you put up with this? Like, why? And, and, you know, what, what's the matter with you that you didn't fix it already? So, uh, so there's a real generational divide there. Uh, But I'm actually encouraged by the anger of the young women, because they really are activists, they really do want to change things. And their young men also seem much more likely to want to be part of the solution. Um, to your second part of your question, I hear from young people who do say that they would like, to, you know, th- they want to be able to change the world, but they're the junior person. What do they do? And, and to them, to men as well as women, I hear this from both. And to both, I always say the most important thing you can do is build alliances, have allies at work, you know, both people of your generation, but also simpatico people who are more senior to you. And it's not necessarily your boss. Um, It it could be somebody in another department. It could be someone who doesn't even work in your company. But but generally what you want is within your organization, you want to have some allies so that you can be each other's, you can back each other up. You know, one one of the um, one of the items on my cheat sheet that I that I love, one of the strategies, it's called Brag Buddies, um, which is which is the idea that um, uh, women actually came up with this idea, but but women and men can both do it, which is I tell you my awesome achievements and you tell me your awesome achievements and then we both go to the boss and brag about the other one, right? The idea being you need somebody who's going to back you up and that can also work in meetings where we know that women, um, the research shows us women are interrupted three times more frequently than men are. I feel like anyone, a young person, a junior person or a senior person should be empowered to say, hey, wait a second, Carol was speaking. I would love to hear her finish. Uh, And the phone goes, by the way, for for people who's, for women in particular, whose voices aren't heard and then whose ideas are pro-appropriated by men. Now, this happens all the time, (laughs) right? I love love that
0: phrase.
1: How often has this happened to you and to listeners um, where you say something in a meeting and nobody seems to hear it? It's like crickets. And then two minutes later, some guy repeats exactly what you just said. And everybody turns to him and they're like, Hey, Bob, great idea. You had Bob, right? (laughs) And it's, it, it, that's actually where the title of the book came from. That's what she said. Cause the- uh, right. <laughs> um, but, but that, that actually is, I used that's happened to me a million times. I used to think it's, it was just me, but it turns out it's all women. There is, there's research on this. Women's voices are just sort of not heard. And very often the guy who's repeating her idea thinks it is his idea. Cause he didn't, he didn't consciously hear her speaking.
0: Right. Right. You, you know, I want to talk a little bit more. I want to get into a little bit more about some of these best practices for culture change. And I have to thank you because recently on NBC News, you talked about returning professional internship programs, or returnships as they are becoming known, as one of the best strategies for gender parity in the workforce. So, thank you for mentioning I Relaunch uh, on national television. Uh, and also, you write about I Relaunch and you mention us uh, in the That's What She Said book in the Invisible Women chapter. So, you know. Here at iRelaunch, we live and breathe return to work programs every day. But I wanted to know from your perspective, where you're looking at it more broadly, how returnships got onto your list of top strategies. And can you talk about some of the other top strategies for culture change? Uh, you know,
1: I put returnships at the top of my list when I talk to organizations, anyone who has an internship program should be able to have a returnship program as well. And I- This, okay. I'm so excited about return trips because this is one of the very, very few areas where in the last year or two, we've actually seen movement. Um, We often talk about like what's happened since the Me Too movement exploded. It's now been a year and a half. I get very frustrated because I feel like there hasn't, there's been a lot of talk, not enough action. Return trips is one area where there has been action. So you you know this better than anyone that, you know, the, the concept Started with Goldman Sachs back in 2008. They actually, they 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 trademarked the name, I believe, returnship. They did, yes, yeah, they did. which is why you say return to work programs. Um, yeah. uh, but at the time when I was researching the book, um, there weren't that many companies that were offering returnships. But uh, but your own research has been tremendously helpful. Uh, you're the ones who shared with me that um, you you're now tracking something like 50 programs. 38 of them created in just the last two years. I think that's tremendous progress. By some estimates, there are more than 3 million women, highly educated women, who are trying to go back to work. Um, And they have all of the energy and the passion, the life experience. They will hit the ground running no matter what. And they are so eager and excited about going back to work. And they have been invisible. To employers, and it is one of my great frustrations. Um, You know, I have kids now. Who, um, you know, most of my most of my friends actually, I was the only one, uh, one of the very few of my friends who did not dial back at work. Most of my friends either went part time or maybe left the workforce for a while. So I've seen firsthand the pain and suffering of these incredibly brilliant women with these advanced degrees. Who can't get a foot in the door, and what a shame for employers! So, so the fact that employers are now waking up to this and offering these return trips is great. Also, the one other thing is, when I started writing the book, I did see that a lot of the returnship programs were um, uh, there was some skepticism; they didn't always lead to jobs. Whereas, um, in uh, more recently, the the percentage figures have been much higher, like 80% or above of people getting jobs either at the employer where they did their returnship or at a similar
0: employer. Yeah, so so first of all, the numbers um, with the um, 50 programs, those are U.S.-based programs. If you look globally, uh, I, I think I didn't even talk beyond the U.S.-based programs. If you look globally, we see over 90 paid corporate return-to-work programs that we've been tracking um, and that uh, the 3 million. So you can track through Bureau of Labor Statistics microdata the number of educated mothers of prime working age with uh, who are not in the labor force, and it's about 2.7 million, and about 80% of them are interested in returning to work. And then you have the ones, um, women who are who don't have kids, or men and women who ha- who take career breaks for reasons that have nothing to do with childcare. It could be elder care or pursuing a personal interest. And and you do have this very big, consistent pool. And as far as that uh, hiring rate, uh, so we do a lot of tracking. Of the, we co lead an initiative with the S- Society of Women Engineers called the STEM Reentry Task Force. We now have 25 global companies involved, and almost 400 people have gone through uh, the individual programs that have been created by each one of these companies, like United Technologies Reempower program, or Johnson & Johnson Reignite, or IBM Tech Reentry. And 85% of them, on average, have been hired. So the numbers are consistent and they're high, and these programs are working. And we, we that's one of the reasons we see them proliferating. And that's one of the things I love
1: about um, these returnship programs and the work that you guys are doing is because it is something where we're seeing steady improvement. And just those return to work statistics, those percentages, I think, are much higher than they were when these programs first started. So uh, all of this to me is is a great sign. I think part of it also is we're in a period of low unemployment. My hope is that if the you know the economy right now is chugging along, my hope is that these programs are not a casualty if the economy slows down.
0: Yep, and you know, we've been around since two thousand and seven and we rode all the way into the recession on all the way out again, and we've always been encouraged by having more and more companies. Uh, come on as clients. And we, even when there are hiring freezes going on, because we think companies are forward looking. So I'm optimistic that even though we're in a full employment economy right now, that yes, indeed, what you're saying is that these, these programs will have taken hold and established themselves in the same way as entry level university internship programs, and they will continue to run uh, even with the ebbs and flows of the economy. So I I, I agree with that they make so
1: much sense when you think about how highly qualified these people are. And yes, it's men as well as women. Um, and when you think about how highly qualified these people are, um, you know, in, in, that's what she said, I tell the story of my college roommate, who's, you know, a, a Yale and Harvard educated lawyer who took time off to raise her children and how she couldn't even get an email returned and you know, how hard it was for her. But when she did get her foot in the door, um, they immediately realized her value, and uh, and I, I I really believe that's the case for so many you know thousands hundreds of, of thousands of these women and men who are trying to return to work.
0: Well, let me just ask you about some very specific parts of your book. Um, and one of one thing I read was you talk about the case of a transgender doctor who originally was. Barbara Bars and then became Ben Bars after his gender transition. So it was really in a position to, uh, to experience firsthand how he was perceived first as a woman and then as a man. And I I, I have a quote here that you reported an, an unknowing audience member heard him present and made the comment to a colleague Ben Barr's work is much better than his sister Barbara's, yeah. <laughs> not knowing it was the same person. Yeah. So I wanted to know if you could comment on, on that uh, and conversation and, and what you learned from him.
1: Yes. That, I use that as an example in a, in a chapter on the respect gap. There is a volu- voluminous research that looks at how people treat men versus women. And there is a documented respect gap. If you put a man and a woman in the same job, same title, same responsibility, the man actually will have more influence and power than the woman does. And we see this in all spheres. But the I, I then sought out transgender professionals because they are the ones who have experienced both sides of the divide. And, and it works both ways. So Ben Barris the, the, who, who, you know, he's the one who, um, that you were just referring to. Oh,
0: I mispronounced his name. Sorry. Um, so,
1: so, so he's, he, uh, transitioned, um, in middle age after already establishing a successful career, academic career. So it was so fascinating that he said, you know, when you transition, everything changes. And yet one of the most astonishing noticeable changes for him was that as a man, he commanded instant respect. And that was not something he had experienced in his earlier life. But we saw the reverse, too. There is a, a mathematician by the name of Joan Roughgarden. Joan Roughgarden, similarly, transitioned in middle age. So Joan Roughgarden was born as Jonathan Roughgarden, was a mathematician, transitioned in, in you know, mid-career, um, and Joan Roughgarden talks about how after her transition, when she disagreed or argued a mathematical concept uh, with a colleague, she would be accused of not understanding the math,
0: mm.
1: something that never happened to her earlier. So we've mm-hmm. seen this kind of go both ways.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, this is not exactly the same thing, but the situation reminds me of a quote that uh, Vivian Raven and I came across when we were co-authoring back on the career track, which came out way back in 2007. So this was 2004 to 2005, we were doing this research. And uh, the Pulitzer Prize nominated reporter Ann Crittenden wrote in her book, which was one of the books we read for our research, it was called The Price of Motherhood. And she recounted that a few years after she had resigned from the New York Times to spend more time with her child, she ran into someone who said, didn't you used to be Ann Crittenden? (laughs) (laughs) Like, you were that person and now you're kind of like not because of, you know, we associate so much of our identity with who we are as a professional yes. that when we're a non-professional, if we're in some sort of a career break uh, caregiving role, for example, then we don't have that authority, you know, male or female. It's actually probably worse for men in, in that situation. It's actually really hard
1: because think about anytime you go to a new place, basically people say, you know, you introduce yourself by name and- the the first question they say, oh, what do you do? And it's really hard for people who are in a career break, really, really difficult. But it also reminds me of another thing that happens uh, most frequently to women is, um, and we all do this, by the way. This is another piece of our unconscious bias. Think about when you go to an event, you meet a couple, or you go to a business uh, gathering, and you meet a man and a woman. Who do you talk to first? Who do you listen to? Right, almost always people will address the man um, as opposed to the woman, and um, you know it—it's it, funny um, when you when you you know, or or it can be excruciating, um, but you see this constantly. I've had to actually adjust my own behavior. I, I talk about in that's what she said uh, um, a business meeting I had. I'd been talking to these. Uh, two executives on the telephone about a, pot- a potential deal, and we'd all been speaking on the phone, and then we met in person. And as the two of them were walking toward me, I immediately went to shake the man's hand first, assuming that he was the more senior person. But in reality, I didn't know; I had no idea, right? And 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 but we do that constantly. That's happened to me. I, I also talk about that, and that's what she said vis-a-vis doctors. Uh, female doctors have this issue constantly, where they um, they walk in, um, and I've heard from multiple women senior physicians who say they walk in in a hospital. They've got a male medical student who is who is trailing them to watch them work, and the patient will say, "I don't want to talk to you, to the to the woman. I want to talk to the real doctor," and point to the medical student.
0: You know, I had a version of that uh, that I've heard that um, female doctors do not get uh, acknowledged as Dr. So-and-so. They're called by their first name more often as opposed to the men. So I I just switched to a female internship. (laughs) Internship. Shows what's on my mind. I I just switched to a female internist and she said, you know, in in our practice, it's casual. We call call each other by your first name. That's fine. And I said, absolutely not. And I told her about this. I said, I'm always going to call you doctor because I have a thing about it, you know, wanting to make sure I'm acknowledging her uh, profession, um, just like I would, I said, I'm, I'm not calling my male doctor by his first name. So I'm not calling you by your first name either. Right. Um, exactly. Well, wow, we're running out of time. And I, I'm just loving this conversation. Uh, Joanne, can you, um, I, I just want to ask you a question that we ask all of our uh, podcast guests. And that is, what is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something we have already talked about today?
1: Ah, let's see. Um, well, um, obviously, buy and read. That's what she said. <laughs> uh, actually, one piece of advice I do give to people who are readers is to share it with someone else, share it with a man. Um, and and I do think it's really important that uh, the the bigger picture piece of advice here would be to, to start that conversation. Whether you're a man or a woman, there's nothing more important right now than opening the channels of communication so that we all can feel comfortable. I I, I was I, I found that that statistic I mentioned before, 74% of men said they're too afraid to talk about this issue, and they're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing. I My goal in all of this truly is to take away the fear, to remove the awkwardness from the conversation, because that's going to be the way we will solve for this. This is how we can close the gender gap is we have to understand that this is an issue for all of us and that it's okay for all of us to talk about it. And we need to make that a comfortable conversation. So open those channels of communication.
0: Thank you. And that's really important for relaunchers who are coming back into a brand new work environment now than what we might have left if you took a career break five or 10 or even more years ago. So thank you. How can people find out more about your work? Um, so, I mean, the book is available wherever you buy your books, online,
1: Amazon, bookstores. Um, and I have a website, joannelipman.com, where I'll update with with new findings and articles uh, and other new information.
0: Can you spell that out? Yes,
1: yeah, yeah. uh, Joanne. fine. Joanne Joannelipman, J-O-A-N-N-E-L-I-P, like theater, M-A-N.com. Joannelipman, one word, dot com.
0: Wonderful. Joanne, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And thanks for listening to 321 iRelaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, the chair and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host. For more information on iRelaunch, go to iRelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on iTunes and your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Twitter and other social media. Thanks for joining us.